Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek, and it has been a long two weeks since we last spoke. This episode was planned well before recent events, but given that it was taped after said recent events, um, there are shades of the electoral results throughout. And as I was discussing with our first guest, Karamit Ryder, when she came to the studio, it's a weirdly hopeful episode for all that, and hopefully you'll find it inspiring even though we're going to be talking about long-term solitary isolation in prisons. People can go years at a time without shaking their sister's hand or hugging a niece or really having any kind of human contact beyond someone occasionally putting handcuffs on them. And the history of oppression for one of the most oppressed peoples in the country. I ask everybody in the world on this day to stand up and pray for the water, to stand up for the water. And the work of a poet who didn't exactly lead the easiest life. Her marriage was breaking up, but she was still married to her husband, Alfred Conrad, when he went up to their country home and and shot himself. For all of that, though, there's a lot to really be inspired by here, especially with my first guest, Karamet Ryder. She's an assistant professor at the School of Law at the University of California, Irvine, and her new book is called 23-7, Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term Solitary Confinement. And when she says long-term solitary confinement, she is not joking. We are talking about decades. Welcome to the studio, Karamet. Thanks for having me. So your new book is called 23-7, and I thought we'd start with that title. So why is it, why 23-7? What's the significance of that? So 23-7 refers to the amount of time prisoners spend in solitary confinement in prisons across the United States. 23 hours a day, seven days a week. They have no more than an hour a day out of their cells. And that's an average. That's kind of at best. So in most places, they would spend maybe two or three hours once or twice a week out of their cells. And it goes on for weeks and months and sometimes years at a time. Yeah, I was surprised to learn about the extent to which prisoners are kept in isolation for decades. I had no idea. I'd known about solitary confinement, but I had no idea that places like Pelican Bay, for instance, were built specifically for that. So can you talk a little bit about why why you chose Pelican Bay as the locus of this story and why it was built? 
So as someone who was interested in prison issues and thought that we didn't know enough about prisons in general in order to kind of make sense of good policy, solitary confinement was an obvious place for me to start because it's kind of the aspect of prison issues we knew the least about. And at the time I was in California and I had done a fair amount of prison advocacy work there. And so I knew about Pelican Bay, which was this 1,056 bed supermax, so built for long-term solitary confinement in the state. I knew it opened in 1989. Uh, and it's, it's the one people kind of point to as the archetype, and it was the place where the first litigation around these conditions of confinement took place. And as I tried to understand the history, it turned out that it really was sort of as pivotal as everybody assumed. It was basically the second supermax built in the U.S. The very first was built in Arizona. California prison officials toured around the country in the 1980s when they were building new prisons to look for kind of new models to imitate. And they found this long-term solitary confinement prison in Arizona, modern, technologically advanced facility. They thought what they saw was incredibly cool, and they made a bigger and better one in California, essentially. Then other states noticed what was happening, and they copied those models. And the federal government actually didn't open one of these modern long-term solitary confinement facilities until the mid-1990s when they opened ADX in Florence, Colorado. So even the federal government copied these state models. So what was the the impetus for these supermax prisons being built? Why did we suddenly see this in the late 80s and then later on in the 90s? So the simple answer is that incarceration rates were skyrocketing around the United States. California was facing one of the biggest uh, expansions in state prison populations of any state, and they were in the middle of a prison building boom when they built Pelican Bay. So over the course of the 1980s and the 1990s, California built 23 new prisons. So that's a kind of simple answer is that it was part of mass incarceration. But of course, there's a much more complicated backstory and history stretching all the way back to the 1970s and periods of revolution and violence in prisons across the United States. There's two particularly famous ones, the death of George Jackson at San Quentin in California in August of 1971, and then the revolt at Attica two weeks later in New York. And those are two moments where there was, uh, you know, undoubtedly incredible violence in the prison systems and incredible fear about what had inspired that violence and a lot of negotiation about how to tell those stories and how to respond to what was happening in the prisons. And while there was violence, there was also a lot of organizing. And the impetus in both of those cases was prisoners organizing together to bring attention to really horrific conditions of confinement in the prison systems and to really serious racism in the ways they were being treated, with African-American prisoners in particular facing much longer sentences. And so this was an incredibly important contributor to mass incarceration generally and to the building of the supermaxes specifically, because prison officials point to these institutions as necessary to control those very people that they identified as leaders in those moments of violence. And so you know, across the U.S., when you look at some of the people who've been in isolation the longest, it's these guys who were accused of being involved in things associated with Attica or with George Jackson's attempt to escape from San Quentin in the 1970s and have been in isolation for 30, 40 years since then. That's a pretty unconventional argument for Supermax, I think, because most of what we get is like, oh, that's for like the worst of the worst. The most violent offenders get put in isolation. But you're contending that it was to stamp out this organizing and radicalism. Basically, that was a really important point of the story. And another piece of evidence to support that is it turns out it's not actually these alleged worst of the worst in Supermaxes. Uh, first of all, in, in none of these institutions are judges or juries sending prisoners there based on what they did outside of prison. They're always being a signed there based on some kind of in-prison behavior or assessment by prison staff. Uh, So it's an internal administrative process. 
So in states like California, either you break a prison rule, so maybe you have some contraband or you participate in a fight. But the other way people end up there is that they're just labeled as dangerous. And in California, being labeled a a gang member, someone dangerous enough to be put in isolation, could be based on something as simple as what you were reading, the autobiography of Malcolm X, George Jackson's letters, the kinds of tattoos you had, who you were socializing with on the prison yard. So it just took three pieces of evidence, and you could be put in isolation for the rest of your prison sentence for an indefinite term, basically. There are very few people who are there because they're these imagined worst of the worst mythical guys. And instead, there's hundreds, if not thousands of people who are there because either they broke some minor prison rule and never managed to get out of isolation, or they were simply labeled as dangerous without much other evidence. Oh, wow. And did you get a chance to to talk to any of these guys in, in solitary or even visit Pelican Bay? Because, you know, it sort of defeats the purpose of solitary confinement if you can talk to journalists or scholars. Exactly. It's incredibly hard to get access to these places. So I have had legal visits in some of these places even before I started this research where I was able to meet with prisoners. But I've never been on the tiers at Pelican Bay because I was not able to get access. So many of the stories in the book come from a combination of prisoners I've corresponded with. So we've exchanged letters over time, uh, prisoners who've been in isolation and then been released. So I was able to talk to them. And and hundreds of prisoners a year are released directly from isolation across the United States. So some of the stories in the book are about trying to find those people and find out what that experience is like. As reforms have started, there's been more and more opportunities to, to gain access to some of these facilities. Pelican Bay let journalists in for the first time in years around some hunger strikes that happened in 2011 and 2013. But yeah, it's one of the fascinating aspects of these stories is that these places are so hidden that even people writing about and studying them, like me, have have a very hard time getting access. And that's kind of in the interest of the prisons themselves, right? Because I have a sense that once you know about the fact that some prisoners have been there for 20 years... You'd want to end that practice. But there's not much that I think people are going to see in these places that that convinces them they're a good idea. And huh. I think that's been why some of the reforms have been so successful. As people have started to understand what's going on here, this has been a moment where people across the political spectrum and with all kinds of different perspectives on tough on crime policy, when they understand how these supermaxes are functioning, there tends to be a surprising social consensus about the fact that they've been overused, that they're expensive and they have potential really detrimental consequences. Uh, So in, in California in 2011, prisoners in these units coordinated a statewide hunger strike to protest the conditions, and it drew national and international attention immediately. And that hunger strike led to the release of some of the first information about the number of people who'd been in these facilities and how long. So a journalist got the first snapshot data that more than 500 prisoners in California had been in isolation at Pelican Bay for more than 10 years. Mm. And I think that really galvanized people to say, well, you know, why are they there? And then when there wasn't even a clear or, or good answer to that to say, well, maybe this is an astronomically expensive policy without much evidence that it's working. And is that how most of the reform around solitary has happened from local strikes within the prisons or statewide activism? Like, how does change actually happen? The change has definitely been happening state by state and even jurisdiction by jurisdiction in some jails, so very much at the local level. Uh, And in California, I think the hunger strikes in 2011 and 2013 were a, a major galvanizing point in a national conversation. And I think in part, these prisoners who were 
both engaging in nonviolent action, which made it so clear that they weren't as uncontrollably violent as prison officials were saying, and also able to bring attention to something that can look relatively clean. The lights are on 24 hours a day. It's poured concrete. There's running water. Uh, they're generally not overcrowded. These facilities can look not as bad uh, until you begin to understand how harsh the conditions are in the prisoners by refusing food and asking for things as simple as can we have a wool cap when we go outside because it's cold? And can we have a handball because there's literally nothing to do in those few hours a week outside but pace around an empty concrete yard? Those kinds of simple demands, I think, were really able to drive home to people in a way they hadn't understood before the harshness of the conditions. But I think there have been other things happening in other states. Um, the cost of these conditions, it can, you know, it's generally about twice as much to keep a prisoner in solitary confinement as to keep them in the general prison population. In California, it's $90,000 per prisoner per year. Uh, so, you know, you could send five, six, seven people to community college for that yeah. cost annually. Um, I think the growing realization that these aren't the worst of the worst, and, and one way we've realized that is, is this fact that states have slowly realized hundreds of people are getting out directly from solitary confinement. You know, they weren't in prison for life sentences because they'd done horrible things. They just ended up in solitary for other complicated reasons. They hung out with the wrong people or they were mentally ill uh, or they broke some little rule. Uh, or read Malcolm X. It, or they read the wrong book. Exactly. So if they're getting out directly from isolation, that suggests they're not the dangerous monsters we thought. But then we've got people coming back to our communities who've spent 10, 15, 20 years in these conditions of confinement. And when you imagine that, even the people who do well, that's an incredibly hard adjustment. Yeah. And it's hard enough to go directly from prison to the community. So going directly from a, a cage is terrible. Exactly. When I talk about this, I like to show a picture of these stark poured concrete isolation cells and just juxtapose it with a busy city street in yeah. New York or Los Angeles. And it's, I mean, just imagining that you can think how hard it would be, the sensory inputs, the choices you have to make, mm. the human contact. People talk about having trouble learning to smile again because it's just, you know, they, they haven't seen anyone eye to eye in so long that they've kind of forgotten how to make normal facial gestures. And can you talk about the image on the, the cover? I didn't understand what that was until <laughs> until I read your book and then I was horrified. Right. I, I feel like the book should come with a sort of explanation on the back of yeah. the cover. But um, so what's in the cover are a picture of two cages. They're they're about the size of a telephone booth each. And they're in a kind of hallway at Pelican Bay. So you can see this stark poured concrete area. And those cages are where prisoners go in that hour a day when they are out of their cell. If, say, they need to go to the law library or they need to see a doctor, they would be put in this kind of cage. So it's a it, it kind of gives you a sense of just how little human contact they have. If their family come to visit, they would usually see them in a bulletproof glass booth, kind of an extension of this also. So it's, it's kind of a way to represent the total lack of human contact in these places, that people can go years at a time without shaking their sister's hand or hugging a niece or really having any kind of human contact beyond someone occasionally putting handcuffs on them. And what kind of social impact has there been? You talked about the difficulty of going back to your community, but what does it do psychologically to these prisoners? 
In some ways, we've been running a, a mass experiment in the U.S. for the last 20, 30 years since these facilities have opened, and we don't have a good sense. We know that when people go into this kind of isolation, they tend to have psychological consequences almost immediately. So we know from all kinds of human experiments around prisoners of war and other studies that people can have hallucinations, heart palpitations, intense anxiety attacks, trouble sleeping within even a few hours of experiencing sensory deprivation. What happens to them after 20, 30, 40 years? We're just beginning to find out. Some people certainly survive, go back to their communities, become functioning members. In general, people age out of crime. And so these guys who've been in prison for 20, 30, 40 years tend to not be particularly violent. The question is just what are the psychological challenges they're grappling with? So guys I've talked to you know, talk about having a really hard time making basic decisions, being uncomfortable in open spaces or crowds because all of that is so unfamiliar. And that's kind of the best case scenario because I'm not talking to the guys who who aren't able to make it out and sit down and have a conversation. Because there is a high rate of suicide among these prisoners or other reasons? In general, there are much higher suicide rates in isolation than in general populations in prison. Again, uh, you know, basically no states are tracking what happens to people when they get out of these conditions after their release. So we don't know if their suicide rates are higher or not. It certainly wouldn't be surprising. We just, what I know from talking to people is that they may not be comfortable leaving their houses at all, uh, or they may have really challenging psychological issues they're dealing with and don't have resources to manage. And there have been some stories of people getting out and and committing horrific crimes. It's amazing how rare they've been, honestly. It kind of speaks to how many of these people probably weren't that violent and were able to sort of find ways to cope. So what do you see as the future for solitary confinement and for prison reform at large? (laughs) Big question, I know. It's changing. <laughs> well, so some some of the story of the book is that we tend to go through these cycles where, you know, people start to pay attention. They get upset about things like these 500 guys who've been in isolation for more than 10 years. They pay attention for a little while. They implement some new reforms. But the attention isn't sustained enough. And there aren't enough resources for prison officials to deal with these tough populations that they do have with overcrowded prisons. So this is one of the fears in California. They're really reducing their reliance on isolation right now. But in two years when no one is monitoring that anymore, will there be prisoners and other forms of isolation in different prisons? And and will we even know or will we start over again? How can we build infrastructure to keep better track of what's happening to these people? We should know across the United States how many people are in isolation, why they're there, how long they're spending there, and be able to kind of evaluate that as taxpaying citizens. (laughs) And, And there should be people going in to visit these places and monitoring them who are independent of the prison system. And when there are tough people who need mental health treatment, there's going to have to be some investment of resources in those. But again, that can really happen at the local level. You know, in a moment when I think there's a lot of fear about what federal politics will be like, the vast majority of people in the U.S. are not in federal prison. They're in state or local facilities. And it's state legislators making those determinations. And there is room at the local level to advocate around these issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there does seem to be this wall between what the public knows and what's going on inside prisons. And we've seen this September this fall with the mass prison strike that we think is going on inside of prisons around labor. Yes. But we don't necessarily know. Right. Which, I mean, it's kind of amazing how little we know. And that actually, it's nice you bring up the prison strike because this is commemorating the anniversary of Attica. So it's, you know, it's a moment of prisoners saying, you know, maybe we can, again, bring attention to these harsh conditions of confinement and to the ways that this system isn't working. And it's, 
You know, whereas I think at the time Attica happened, at the time George Jackson was accused of escaping from San Quentin, there really was national attention. And it's kind of scary that the facilities have become so close that we don't even know right now how many prisoners are participating in in these labor strikes. But again, when you look at local news, (laughs) you know, very local news, you can see that there are certainly prisoners across the country refusing to go to work. And in some cases, they're even being joined by prison staff who are also protesting the conditions. And to me, that's a that's a real moment of hope to say, you know, we understand we're on the same side of these issues and we all need better resources to deal with this. Mm -hmm. Because the guards are also the ones who decide who goes into solitary, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Caravan. Thanks for having me. So let's turn to some of the local organizing that's happened on a different issue. In Standing Rock, North Dakota, the Dakota Access Pipeline has been fiercely opposed by indigenous and environmental activists. Since April of this year, members of the Sioux Nation have come together at the Sacred Stone Camp on the edge of the construction site by the Missouri River. And over the past few months, they've been joined by thousands of people, American Indian tribe members from all across the country, environmental activists, concerned citizens, and last Tuesday, November 15th, by solidarity actions all around the world. In fact, there was one just down the street from the scholar's office, at the Army Corps of Engineers headquarters. I ask everybody in the world on this day to stand up and pray for the water, to stand up for the water. As we see across the United States and across the world, people are standing up now. But even if you've been following the story in the news, there hasn't been much of a focus on the history of the land in question. And it's long and it's ugly and it makes our government look really, really bad. So for a look at some of that history, I asked Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz and Dina Gillia-Whitaker to talk to us about the history, not just of the Sioux Nation, but of all the indigenous people in the country who've been dealing with oppression. They've just written a book together about some of the myths we've been telling ourselves about Native Americans called All the Real Indians Died Off. Just for the sake of our listeners, can you identify yourselves by name? I'm Dina Gillia Whitaker. And I'm Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. So I thought we'd start today by talking um, a little bit about the history of the Sioux Nation and Standing Rock and providing some historical context. So this is really not the first time that the land rights of the Standing Rock tribe and the Sioux Nation at large have been subjected to um, infringement. So for the sake of comparison, what land now did the Sioux Nation have by treaty and what did they use to live on? Well, by treaty, they still have the Great Sioux Nation, that original configuration, but they don't control it because it has been taken illegally from them. In 1851, the United States and the Sioux uh, came to an agreement, a treaty agreement, The Sioux ceded some claims of territory, but they still maintained a contiguous territory that was all of North and South Dakota, most of Montana and Nebraska. There were incursions and further wars, so another treaty of peace after the Civil War in 1868, in which that same land base was uh, again ratified. And again, That treaty was broken when gold was discovered in the Black Hills, the most sacred land of the Sioux people. Uh, So this is um, the beginning of 
the breakdown of the Sioux Nation into parcels. And so where they live are on nine different separate reservations, Standing Rock being one, but they each are islands surrounded by um, white settlers. They maintain relationships with each other, but it's broken down a lot of their ceremonies, and there have been disputes between them, as happens when there's this colonial control. So a part of the present struggle at at Sanding Rock that's really beautiful is the total solid support, you know, the coming together of the Great Sioux Nation, including the tribal councils, not just the American Indian movement dissidents, but actually all of the people and then all Native peoples all around the country and Canada and really all over the world. There's contributions and support. Is this the first time that the various sub-tribes of the Sioux Nation have come together like this, or has there been something in the past century that, that mirrors that? Well, no, the refusal of what was originally $81 million, that's now $2.5 billion, I consider that an incredible example of their unity because they've refused to take the money, and they are the poorest people in the whole hemisphere. So for them to maintain this solid front, it's just absolutely remarkable because if any any of them did give in and say they'll take the money, they could get it all, you know, just to sign the dotted line. So what you're seeing at Standing Rock right now, that unity, is a part of that continuation of the insistence upon the 1851-1868 treaties and the return of the Black Hills. Yeah, I loved reading about the story of how the the tribes came together and fought legally within the, the Supreme Court system and also in their own judicial system, basically from the Black Hills seizure to 1980, almost a century of struggle. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just amazing. At that time, most people didn't even speak English. The United States did everything they could, every trick in the book, to break that up, to destroy it. The sense of who they were as a people. And there's a split because in, the, in 1934, the U.S. government, uh, Indian Reorganization Act, created tribal councils and these tribal councils were inevitably formed of people who were bilingual or, you know, spoke English, who were probably mixed or Christianized, who would then take the reins of this new tribal council and actually undermine or created a division between the traditional governance and practices and these modern ones patterned on the United States with a completely different form of government so you had this really strong split. That's what the Wounded Knee Uprising in 1973 was really the people rising up against their tribal chairman who was uh, uh, signing over uh, land and was absolutely corrupt and was also depriving the traditional people of the annuity payments that had come from the treaties from the federal government. Just to, to interject here, what distinguishes this particular struggle from those days, from these pan-Indian movements like the Alcatraz Island occupation, the Trail of Broken Treaties in the mid-1970s, was the fact that they're not fighting their own government anymore. 
the resistance, to my knowledge, doesn't really emanate from the tribal councils or the tribal chairmen. But now with Standing Rock, we have the backing of the tribal government and Dave Archambault coming out in um, very strong leadership. Certainly. And what were the political outcomes of these past examples that you were citing? Was there any kind of difference in the relation between the government and the indigenous people who were taking action? Oh, yeah. During this period, we're still in a policy, federal Indian policy, that's rooted in what we call termination, an attempt by the federal government to solve its Indian problem once and for all. Termination, it's as, it's as ominous as it sounds. It was a, a way for the United States to be done with it, the final solution. So in the late 60s, the federal government is still trying to get tribes to agree to terminate, which would end effectively the Bureau of Indian Affairs. All the Indian land ideally would end up going into um, fee simple, becoming privatized, and there would be you know, no more tribes as legal entities like they are now. But what happens after the rise of these Indian nationalist movements is they have such a profound impact politically and socially that it leads to an amazing change in federal policy. So uh, in 1975, under the Nixon administration, we see the passing of the Indian Education um, and Self-Determination Act, and, and that's what we've had ever since then. Yeah, and after the 1980 Supreme Court case, U.S. versus Sioux Nation of Indians that had to do with the seizure of the Black Hills, there was this incredible remark from one of the justices where they said, a more ripe and rank case of dishonorable Mm -hmm. dealings will never in all probability be found in our history, which is pretty incredible. It was incredible, and that changed very quickly with the Supreme Court. 1982, I think it was, there were two Supreme Court decisions, one after another, Sandra Day O'Connor being a good colonial settler and rancher in Arizona, wrote the decisions, but they were unanimous, too, that were very negative. Uh, So that 1980 decision was really the last positive decision of the uh, Supreme Court in relation to Native people. Although the Dollar General case recently was a near miss two or three months ago. So what kind of legal options do you see for the conflict at Standing Rock now? Well, definitely, you know, that so-called private property that the protesters went on to serve notice that the 1851 Treaty of of the Sioux Nation with the United States included that territory, and somehow it had gotten out of the Standing Rock jurisdiction sold illegally, and now the the company that's actually building the pipeline uh, bought it at auction but didn't follow procedures where it has to be advertised in three places, and it was sort of a rigged auction and really was just a private sale. The federal government is obligated to bid on any land that was illegally taken as in private hands if it comes up for sale They're supposed to restore it. That's part of the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act. So there are multiple defects in this um, 
in this little piece of land, but they brought in uh, police forces from five different states and the National Guard to gas and beat up and, and arrest. I think the arrest is up to 500 now. The defendants are all, when they're called into plea, they are, are politicizing it and using the treaty and saying that the court has no jurisdiction. And there were problems with the National Historic Preservation Act. There were rules and laws that were supposed to be followed. Appropriate consultation was never done. Um, and then there's the problem of the permit. Um, Obama has come out and said, you know, most recently that there should be another way to reroute this pipeline. This would be for the third time. So there's a whole bunch of legal problems that could shut this thing down, but they fast-tracked this. And I think that they thought that they were going to just quietly build this pipeline and nobody was going to object, which really is the only explanation for, you know, going forward with an unpermitted process. And and Bismarck, of course, had fought it. So they actually moved it to affect the Standing Rock Reservation rather than Bismarck without any consultation with the Standing Rock authorities. Which makes it a clear case of environmental racism. Mm -hmm. To conclude this episode, I've invited Sandra Gilbert, the renowned poet and literary critic, to read us a poem. Sandra wrote a stellar review of the recently published collected poems of Adrian Rich for our autumn issue, and she's also published some truly delightful and occasionally wicked ekphrastic poems this year, which I had a lot of fun illustrating on Twitter for our spring issue. Hello, I'm Sandra Gilbert, and I'm here to talk about Adrian Rich, what her work and life mean for us, and in particular what they mean for us today, just after an extraordinarily fraught and in many ways frightening national election. I can't help wondering how Adrienne would feel living at this hour to write poems that would comfort, console, inspire, and rouse us to resistance. When I look back over Adrienne's work, I think... Uh, with great, great admiration of how she grew from being a decorous young woman at Radcliffe in the 40s and and 50s, uh, a wife and mother who seemed to be living rather a conventional life and writing beautifully crafted but rather conventional poems, how she grew from that situation to become the poet laureate of feminism, to become a kind of prophetess of her country, a spokesperson for the oppressed and for the marginalized, and also a dreamer, a great dreamer of, of transformation. It's important to remember that uh, one of her great turning point books, Diving into the Wreck, was published in the early 70s 
Uh, the poems are written in 1971 and 72, just uh, when Nixon was elected and just before the Watergate scandal and in the midst of the Vietnam War. This was a time of great public turmoil, um, as I hardly need say. And it was also a time of private personal turmoil for her. She was discovering herself as a lesbian and as a lesbian activist. Uh, she was uh, the mother of three sons. Her marriage was breaking up, but she was also a widow. I mean, she was still married to her husband, Alfred Conrad, when he went up to their country home and, and shot himself. So she was mourning for him, and she was mourning for our country, I think, too. The public and the private came together, and um, I have always thought of her as someone who inscribed her life and her work in invisible ink. You have to hold it up to a very bright light and be very conscious to see the ways in which what was happening to her personally merged with what was happening publicly and gave her subjects about which she could write with great intensity. In the 70s, at a time of great crisis, not only were we confronting Watergate and the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement, but the women's movement seemed as though we were going to really change the world. It seemed that way until last week. And Adrienne wrote one of her greatest poems at this time. I can read it endlessly, and I think I'll read it now. It's a poem called Diving into the Wreck. In this poem, she uses the, the metaphor of deep-sea diving and imagines herself as somebody in a diving suit going down into the depths of the ocean to examine a shipwreck. The shipwreck becomes a great metaphor, first of all, if you know her personal life, for the wreck of the marriage that uh, she felt very sorrowful about and that she wanted to understand. But it also, I think as you listen and you read, it became a metaphor for a whole culture that was wrecked, for a whole culture in which something had to change because, because things seemed to her to be getting worse and worse. We were up against a war that was fearsome, against technological powers that were horrifying, against oppression that seemed impossible to cast off. And so she wrote this poem. So this is Diving into the Wreck. First, having read the book of myths and loaded the camera and checked the edge of the knife blade, I put on the body armor of black rubber, the absurd flippers, the grave and awkward mask. I am having to do this not like Cousteau with his assiduous team aboard the sun-flooded schooner, but here alone. There is a ladder. The ladder is always there, hanging innocently close to the side of the schooner. We know what it is for, we who have used it. Otherwise, it's a piece of maritime floss, some sundry equipment. I go down, rung after rung, and still the oxygen immerses me, the blue light, the clear atoms of our human air. I go down. My flippers cripple me. I crawl like an insect down the ladder, and there is no one to tell me when the ocean will begin. 
First the air is blue, and then it is bluer, and then green, and then black. I am blacking out, and yet my mask is powerful. It pumps my blood with power. The sea is another story. The sea is not a question of power. I have to learn alone to turn my body without force in the deep element. And now it is easy to forget what I came for among so many who have always lived here, swaying their crenellated fans between the reefs. And besides, you breathe differently down here. I came to explore the wreck. The words are purposes. The words are maps. I came to see the damage that was done and the treasures that prevail. I stroke the beam of my lamp slowly along the flank of something more permanent than fish or weed. The thing I came for, the wreck, and not the story of the wreck. The thing itself, and not the myth. The drowned face always staring toward the sun. The evidence of damage, worn by salt and sway into this threadbare beauty. The ribs of the disaster, curving their assertion among the tentative haunters. This is the place, and I am here, the mermaid whose dark hair streams black, the merman in his armored body. We circle silently about the wreck. We dive into the hold. I am she, I am he, whose drowned face sleeps with open eyes, whose breasts still bear the stress, whose silver copper veil made cargo lies obscurely inside barrels, half wedged and left to rot. We are the half-destroyed instruments that once held to a course, the water-eaten log, the fouled compass. We are, I am, you are, by cowardice or courage, the one who find our way back to this scene, carrying a knife, a camera, a book of myths, in which our names do not appear. I do think that's one of the great poems of the uh, second third of the 20th century. And it's a poem in which someone who has been through both private and public tumult seeks to understand what has happened. It seems extraordinary to me that this poem, which was written, um, uh, it was written in 1972, 11 elections ago, 44 years ago, and it's still apropos. We are at this moment looking at a wreck into which we must dive. There's a lot about gender that we need to re-examine. We need to plunge into the collective unconscious now at the time of this election to understand what has happened to us and to our country and to see what treasures may prevail and also to try to find a new way, a new way to confront um, the disaster, the ribs of the disaster, as Rich puts it. She never abandoned this subject in a, in a later poem in the 90s, uh, a poem called An Atlas of the Difficult World. Uh, it's very long, so I couldn't possibly read it, but I'll, I'll just read a little passage. She says, I am bent on fathoming what it means to love my country. 
And then she goes on to say, a patriot is not a weapon. A patriot is one who wrestles for the soul of her country as she wrestles for her own being. This makes her really, really important to us right now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.